Hey, you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a Catholic podcast that explores topics within the Catholic faith to help us deepen our spiritual lives, own our relationship with the Lord, and strengthen His church. Hello, my name is Rochelle Lucero, and you're listening to the Clumsy Theosis Podcast. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. I'm glad you came, and I hope you come back. If you are a returning listener, I'm so glad you guys decided to come back and learn more about the faith and how to apply it to your life so that you can transform the world. Today, I'm hoping that Timothy is listening because Timothy is the most recent donor to the Clumsy Theosis Podcast. This podcast is not possible without donations from listeners like yourself, so any amount that you can give is greatly appreciated. And know that all of your donations go back into the podcast and the ministry of Clumsy Theosis so that we can reach more people and transform the world for the Lord. Now today's topic, we are diving into Trinitarian and Christological heresies. So what do we know about this? Well, we know that with Jesus' incarnation, he invited the world to see into the inner life of God. He revealed that the one God, as in the God who had been in relationship with the Jewish people, that one God exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're about to look at how the very first Christians of the church struggled to work this out because this was something very new for them. And when I say very first, I'm talking about the very first, as in the Christians during the time of the apostles. Today, we're going over three wrong understandings of the Trinity and two false beliefs about Jesus. The Trinitarian heresies in no particular order, these are just the order in which I decided to cover them, are monarchianism, subordinationism, and Gnosticism. And the Christological heresies we'll cover, and Christological refers to Christ. These Christological heresies are Docetism and Ebionitism. Since there's so much for us to go over in this episode, we're just going to dive right in. And so if you're one of my note takers out there, we're starting early today. Grab your pen, grab your paper, and let's just jump right in. And I tried this episode out on my mom (laughs) as practice, and she suggested that I warn you guys that I mentioned a lot of isms, like Gnosticism, subordinationism, Ebionitism, all of that. Um, But she said that the content is very easily understandable. Basically, don't be intimidated. And I agree with her. I totally agree with her. She's my mom, right? I'm not going to not agree with her, especially on a worldwide distributed podcast. (laughs) So for our first Trinitarian heresy, monarchianism. Monarchianism is the belief that there is only one person in God, and that would be God the Father. And God the Father is the sole creator and ruler of all of the world. And the way that I remember this heresy is by the word monarch and how that's the part, you know, that's the first part of monarchianism. So there's one sovereign. So it's God is just God the Father. And so that would disclude God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. They don't exist in this. Uh, view of the Trinity. Now, my sympathies kind of go out to the Christians who fell into this heresy. Because in the ancient world, most religions were polytheistic. Poly meaning many and theistic referring to gods. So they believed in many gods. Now, the Jews, of course, were monotheistic. Mono as in one, one God. 
And we know that the first Christians had Jewish roots. And because of their Jewish roots, they upheld that God was one. This made a lot of sense to them. For the ancient world, if you were a Jew or if you were a Gentile, the concept of three persons in one God looked a lot like polytheism, which they knew was not Christian. And so they denounced it. Even though these Christians have my sympathies, you know, with their Jewish roots taken into consideration and all of that, I still have to ask myself, what did they do when they heard the scriptures read during the liturgies that referred to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or, or better yet, when they were baptized, because a lot of the first Christians were not infants when they were baptized, so they had to have heard the Trinity invoked at their baptism. Now, we know that the canon of scripture, meaning that all of the books that are in the Bible as we know it today, was not decided upon for a couple of centuries after the beginning of Christianity. But we do know that the letters and the gospels were being circulated amongst Christian congregations. And so they would have come across, at some point or another, something that should have tipped them off about the Trinity. And here are a few options that could have tipped them off. The most obvious and most famous is in Matthew 28, 19, which reads, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And others include John 15, 26. In his gospel, he writes, But when the counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. Also, Paul writes about the Trinity in 2 Corinthians and in his letter to the Hebrews. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we are familiar with this because this is part of the Roman Mass. And Hebrews 9, 14, Paul writes, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let us stop and think for a minute here, because their logic, it really confounds me. Think about this. If monarchians believe that God is only Father, then what did they conclude about Jesus? You know, Jesus, the one whom Christianity is founded upon, because we know that Jesus identifies himself as son more than once in the scriptures. I've already said that the canon of scripture had not been decided at this time in Christianity. The majority of Christians, especially during the first century, learned the good news, learned the gospel through oral tradition, but they would have known that Jesus was the son of God. But If they're going to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, if they're saying that God is only Father, then that means that Jesus cannot be God. What does then that make of the cross and of salvation and of the Eucharist? You see how the faith can just easily unravel if we continue to pull on this thread? If Jesus isn't God, then everything that Christianity is based upon, the message of Christianity, doesn't exist anymore. And it wouldn't be long before they start to realize this. And, of course, they tried to patch up their misunderstanding with some more bad theology. And in doing so, they create two more heresies in the following centuries. One heresy was about the Trinity, and it was called modalism, 
also known as Sabellianism, and the other was a Christological heresy, so it was a heresy about Christ, called Adoptionism. I'll go over them in the episode that I do on the second century heresies. But for the meantime, we're going to move on to Subordinationism. Subordinationism acknowledges that Jesus and the Holy Spirit exist, but they claim that they are somehow less than God the Father in their nature and in their being. They're lesser creatures. So for subordinationists, Christ is not God, but a being that is particularly close to God. And the same is also true of the Holy Spirit. When I hear this, I think about photocopies. A photocopy looks like the original, but not quite. They don't have quite the same nature as the original. Photocopies don't have the same value of their original either, right? Say that you photocopied a check and tried to cash it. It might have full color and be the correct size and dimension and the correct paper and all of that, but the teller won't cash it because only the actual check is the check. Following subordinationism down this rabbit hole that it creates, how does Jesus' death on the cross bring about our salvation? Think about that. If he is not as much God as God the Father, how does his death on the cross have the same efficacy? You see, this is problematic. Subordinationism spawns one of the most notorious heresies about Christ called Arianism, which we'll get to when we cover the 4th century heresies. And this actually still exists today, and it's kind of crazy how it's lasted for 2,000 years. All right, the last Trinitarian heresy of the 1st century that I'm going to cover is Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. The Gnostics believed, well... The Gnostics were just weird. Let me just say that up front. I don't know if they were high or what they were on because they came up with some off-the-wall stuff. But overall, they believed that they had acquired some secret knowledge of God. And there were so many different sects of Gnosticism, and they were so secretive in nature anyways, it's hard for us to um, really find out what they all really believed. Whatever they believed, it was in opposition to orthodoxy, meaning like the right teaching of the Christian faith. They were typically dualistic, meaning that they believed in a good God and a bad God or or a mean God. And that meaner God that they believed in was the God of the Old Testament. Now, I know some people out there who are good Catholics and they kind of have this view of the God of the Old Testament, but that's because they're not very They're just not familiar with salvation history. And so if you know anyone like this, get them a book or send them an article on salvation history so that they don't believe this heresy. The bad God that Gnostics believed in, he created the broken world that we live in. Therefore, the material things of this world were considered bad, and that included the body, whereas the spirit, the soul, was thought to be good. Depending on whatever Gnostic sect The body was either thought of as needing some sort of harsh discipline in order to keep it in order, or they went to the opposite extreme and did whatever they wanted to do with their bodies because in their view, the body didn't really matter. The body was just a shell or a casing of the soul that would just be discarded when they died. And I think this sounds a lot like today's secular society. Correct me if I'm wrong here. And when I think about their view of the body, this is what I think. I ask myself, 
What about the resurrected body that Paul preaches to the Corinthians? Speaking of Paul, he rebukes Gnosticism in the first letter that he writes to Timothy. In chapter 6, he writes, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which have some professed and thus gone astray from the faith. This belief in the separation of the body and soul wasn't just a Gnostic thing. This Gnostic error can also be seen in the first Christological heresy we're going to cover today. So a heresy about Christ during the first century, and this is called docetism. The docetists taught that Christ only appeared or seemed to be a man. He only appeared or seemed to have been born or to have lived and suffered. They thought that he was some sort of like a supernatural being that had some sort of power to create this illusion that everyone kind of like fell for. And depending on where they fell within this heresy, some of them denied the reality of Christ's human nature altogether, whereas others only denied the reality of his human body or the fact that he was born and died. I don't know how they picked and chose which ones to believe and which ones not to believe because it all seems a little crazy in my opinion. And this is another example of us seeing the apostles combating heresy in scripture because both Paul and John combat docetism in their writings. Here are some powerful instances by John, and they're very obvious once we know this heresy. In 1 John 1.1, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay? And here's another one. In 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. Okay, like that was pretty obvious right there. And he's getting a little bit more strong in his language by saying that they're the Antichrist. And then also in 2 John 1 through 7, um, here's just, or sorry, 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And then in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what harm does this heresy cause, right? To believe that Christ came only as an illusion, only in the appearance of a man. What, does, what, what problems arise from believing this? Well, this heresy destroys the very meaning and the purpose of the incarnation, as in Jesus's birth. Now, St. Saint Gregory of Nazianzus, I think he aptly summarized the necessity of the incarnation of Christ when he said, what has not been assumed has not been healed. See, though Gregory of Nazianzus was arguing with another heretic and in the fourth century, which we will see when we get to that century, 
the same truth applies. Because in order for Jesus to redeem man, he needs to redeem all of man, man's body, soul, and spirit. In order to do that, Christ had to assume all of the elements of our human nature. Otherwise, man would not have been saved. And what about the Eucharist? If Jesus wasn't really in the world as a man, as flesh and blood, if the word didn't really become flesh, then what does that mean about the Eucharist? Or what about Mary? Something that people forget is when people start tampering with the incarnation of Christ, they're implicitly changing the role of Mary in salvation history. Just saying. All right, so our final heresy of the first century is Ebionitism. This heresy was just infected with so many Jewish errors. They just totally clung to the Jewish beliefs, right? They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but only the human Messiah that the Jews were expecting. Because, you know, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but they expected their Messiah to be a warrior king. And so, therefore, Jesus was not the Messiah that came to save us from sin and from death. Being steeped in this Jewish belief of God and the Messiah and his role, they also stuck to the Mosaic law. And they thought that it was still something that was required for them to follow. There was no new law with Christ because Christ wasn't God. He was a human, in, you know, according to their view. They believed that Jesus was not divine, nor was he miraculously born of a virgin. And his death, it was just a death. It was just a human death. There was no salvation that was able to come out of it because he wasn't God. And that sounds pretty bleak, in my opinion. And when we translate the root of the word of this heresy, Ebionitism, the root means poor. And this refers to the poverty of their understanding or the poverty of the law, the Mosaic law that is, to which they clung to, or the poor opinion that they held concerning Christ. Ebionitism influences another Christological heresy in the next century, which we will cover next time, called Adoptionism. Adoptionism was also informed by monarchianism, and we'll see how both of these heresies kind of like intermingle and become this new heresy. All right, so since our last episode, I asked you guys to pay attention during all of the liturgical celebrations that you attended to keep your ear out for all of the invocations of the Trinity proven to be pretty beneficial in these last two weeks for me, so I'm going to keep it going, and I encourage you guys to do that as well. And as I mentioned earlier, thanks to my mother's suggestion, I did talk about a lot of isms here, but as you heard, it, I've explained it in a way where these things are very easy to understand and comprehend, and you might want to go back and listen to it again and write like little notes for yourself, but knowing the, knowing the history of the church and our faith, it's very important, and it really, it'll inform your faith in ways that you probably wouldn't have realized, because you're not going to notice that you're lacking in some areas until they're, they've been filled with knowledge and understanding. So I'm excited for your growth and my growth as well, because this is, as I'm writing it out, it's, it's reinforcing things that I already know and just um, making me more appreciative, and I'm just having a great time doing it. So we're going to continue with our second century of heresies during our next episode. All right, everybody, until next time, please consider making a donation because I have a lot in store and I can't do it without your help. These donations are trickling in, but I'm very appreciative and they're very much needed and I'm using them to help you guys. 
All right, everyone. Peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Clumsy Theosis. I'm so happy that you've been able to hang out. If you want to learn more about Clumsy Theosis, you are more than welcome to visit my website, clumsytheosis.net. From clumsytheosis.net, you will also be able to contact me if you're interested in booking me as a speaker or if you're just feeling generous and you'd like to make a donation. Remember that together we can transform the world by letting the Lord transform us. 